Welcome to Neuroscience Talk Shop. Our guest today is Jeff Schoenbaum, who is Senior Investigator at uh, NIDA, which is the National Institute for Drug Abuse, for those of you not in the know. Um, his lab uses principles derived from learning theory to experimentally define the neural mechanisms of adaptive decision-making and how they unravel in neuropsychiatric disorders like addiction. Hi, Jeff. Hi. And around the room, we've got Matt Wynott. Hello. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, so, Jeff, you emphasized um, the importance of learning through your approaches as tools for the neurophysiologist to understand some of the, the microstructure of multidimensional behavior and map it into neural circuits that, that guide value-based decision-making is, is what um, I think you do I'm mostly now. That's my favorite word already. Uh-oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, we can talk about that. Um, so can you... Say something about the power and maybe maybe even some of the pitfalls of adopting the language and conceptual frameworks of learning theories to, to characterize neur- neural signals. I mean, just can you just talk us through some of that and what exactly, I mean, what were the priorities of the learning theorists versus our priorities and some of the debates and have they percolated through into neuroscience? Just take it away, whatever you want to say about <laughs> right. this. Uh, okay, well, so I, mean, I guess a simpler form of that question I thought maybe you were going going to ask me is basically why do I think learning theory paradigms are useful tools for neuroscience. That's the question. Said um, a lot better. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess the reason I think that they are a useful way to understand the neuro, they're they're useful for for studying the neural circuits mediating, you know, learning and behavior um, is because they were basically developed empirically to explain how uh, animals do in fact learn associative information, how they abstract the world into these associative you know, structures, and then how they apply that information to, to, to guide at least very simple forms of behavior. Now, obviously, you know, we probably think we engage in really much more complicated forms of behavior, but probably they're based upon the same kinds of rules. I mean, certainly we have roughly analogous neural circuits. And so, so, so it's the only framework I know of that has a uh, strong empirical basis and predictive validity outside of the particular idiosyncratic task in which you know this theory was developed, or whatever. And I guess computational neuroscience kind of joins that, um, you know. But, uh, but I guess that's where I see its value, and I think it's been, I think the last ten years have shown that it's valuable. I mean, you know, uh, ideas from people like Bernard Blin about how striatal circuits segregate learning about stimulus response function versus uh, response outcome. Um, ideas about hippocampus being involved in stimulus, stimulus kind of relational behavior. I mean, that's got a very strong root in learning theory, I think. And obviously the stuff that our lab's done and other people with prefrontal circuits and orbital frontal cortex. And, um, Is there a different burden? So we can, can you say something about neural correlates versus neural mechanisms in discussing behavior? Because I mean, can uh, we actually get to mechanisms versus just sort of correlative um, temporal stuff like can you just say something about that well, or is there anything to say about that talking here no. uh, <laughs> so, we talked about this yeah so I, I, maybe I'll ask it a different way what's so you talk about how this is a great framework for I mean it's valuable right so how does it translate in terms of what people actually do in terms of neural recordings and then there's advantages in terms of the research studies yeah and there's advantages and disadvantages right and so there's problems that it introduces to be 
relying on that. Um, so it's overly, because if you do an experiment, you get complicated stuff, right? right. You look at the brain, there's a lot of stuff happens. And now if you look at, if you're really biased, buying into some theoretical framework, well, then everything has to be put into that framework that you report. Otherwise, then you ignore it, right? Right. Yep. Um, and so it's, it's great to have some framework, but it can be dangerous, too. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, and uh, the language doesn't always map, right? I mean, this idea of value is such a huge principle that guides everything in a lot of these models. But so, what so my mean? opinion of that actually is that that's not the case. So, um, I recently uh, was involved in writing something with uh, somebody, uh, Camilo Padua Schiappa, who does neuroeconomics, and one of the we kind of tried to pose questions to each other about. Um, you know, where we didn't understand what the other was saying, because he comes from this very different tradition about economics and economic value and sort of from the learning theory tradition. And he wanted to know, well, okay, what is, what's value to a learning theorist? And after thinking about it for a while, and then even actually going and asking a bunch of people I consider to be learning theorists who are way smarter than I am, uh, my conclusion is that uh, there is no such thing as value to a learning theorist, right? Uh, there is behavior, right? The animal picks X and not Y. Right? And you can call that value. And maybe we do call it value in a shorthand way just because you have to call it something. Right? So value is like the slang term. But I don't think anyone would ever say that there is like a value representation. Like what guides an animal, from, from, from my view in the learning theory term, what guides an animal to pick X and not Y is uh, their opinion about X based on a whole rich associative structure that they've learned. Right? And so then you could boil that all down into one value number, and that's what the neuroeconomists kind of think they're doing. Um, but you don't have to. Why? Why do you have to do that? Um, but some of the things that the reason you have, it seems practically the reason you have to do that is you have to get like a mouse or a rat to do something, right? And, okay, and, but, and a controlled set setting, right? So you want to manipulate only a few variables. Okay. So you only put a few variables in. Right. And because no, you, want sure. to, you okay. want to get you want to get value, you, you want to get them to do something Absolutely. versus something else. So the thing that you want them to do has to be valuable enough for them to do it. And now because you've made it one versus the other, that becomes the value in some some right. reward. But right? you're again using it in kind of a shorthand slang term for a much richer understanding of what might actually be going on there, right? Um, and uh, I'll just give you one. Uh, so I think, I mean, what you're touching on is there's really, I mean, people are lazy. They've been lazy in how they sort of write papers and how they talk about value. And, you know, it is, as you were saying, it is operationally sort of defined. But, you know, your work, uh, when Matt Roche is in your lab, um, other work from Paul Phillips' lab, you know, has demonstrated that you can see neurotransmitter release that is, or, you know, neural signals that are correlated with differences in value, but that doesn't necessarily, or differences in sort of reward magnitude or other aspects of sort of a reward related task, but it doesn't translate into behavior. And so the thing is, we're so reductionist and we're saying, aha, I mean, I, I, we love the dopamine system and we think the dopamine system is doing everything, but, you know, 
we want to ascribe this value function that we're seeing in these neural signals in a single brain region, assume that that therefore is driving behavior. And I think that's an unbelievably simplistic idea. And unfortunately, it just sort of gets confusing in the sense that people have sort of, again, been lazy as opposed to just right. sort of describing operationally. I mean, there is no good word. I mean, if we were Eskimos and we had 25 words for, you know, what value is, then it would be a lot easier as they do for snow. But we don't necessarily have that. And so it's been thrown around in a lazy sense where you can talk about neural signals that are value encoding, but there is no behavior necessarily that's associated with it. And a lot of the work actually from the original Wolfram Schultz's studies were recording in Pavlovian tasks, but they weren't necessarily looking at the behavior while it was the animals were engaging that task. And subsequently, you know, things have changed. But again, a lot of these ideas stem from these associations that were correlative again. Um, but again, not necessarily tying the behavior to uh, value. Right. Yeah. But is that so? Because that's one of the things that you introduce when you do neural recordings. I mean, as a psychologist, you have the only output you have is behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you know, what, I mean, what's learning otherwise? I mean, any of these terms that you're trying to generalize and, 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 and reduce and study a thing has to be operationalized to something that's reducible to be experimentally tractable. And so, yeah. If you have behavior, you only have one, you have some ways have one correlate in terms of value, in terms of what they do, right? But now if you get in the brain, then you have what they do, and then you have a lot more very things or some things are expressed, or you have a lot more richer sense of internal states that have to be in psychology, internal states have to be inferred from behavior, right? And so that's why you do ingenious experiments, the internal states, because you make the behavior somehow have to reflect those things. Uh, but when you're recording the brain, you can get all sorts of correlates yes. with different kinds of things that you're manipulating, and they don't always have to go along with behavior. So now you have a question about whether the internal states and the behavior are the same thing. So if you have the language, which how do you describe ascribe that language, which was presumably talking about internal states that you really never had a sense of in psychology, all these psychological constructs, you only had the behavior. Um, but now you have can infer what you had inferred before from the behavior, but you also have the the state. So what happens to the language when they're not always the same, right? What you see, you know, you, now you have neural correlates of the of those constructs, and right. you have the behavioral correlates of those constructs, and you're trying to figure out kind of how they go. So are you just stuck? So you can't talk about value at all. Um, I think. Uh yeah, I was thinking of a different answer to your question where you brought it back to value. I mean, so so my feeling about neural recording and neural correlates is that uh, they, they are just hints as to how an area might be processing information related to the behavior that you've uh, designed your study around. And I think it's important to try to design your, your experiment to tightly constrain the behavior and isolate the function that you think is of interest, right? And then, of course, you can try to see if there's a neural correlate there. But, you know, realizing we're looking at really primitive firing patterns and the brain likely represents information so much and in such a different way from what we can actually look at. I kind of wonder sometimes how worthwhile it is. But we've constrained the behavior so much that, okay, let's take it as a given that because of our behavioral constraints, we can learn something from the firing of a single unit or even a handful of single units, right? But then I think it's really important to take that hypothesis from your neural correlate and then go back to some sort of a causal study, right? 
Um, you know, if you can't do it in the species you're interested in, humans or whatever, then maybe try to find another group that does it in a different species and actually ask, you know, is that area or that's neuron or, you know, with whatever tools at whatever level we're capable of doing, try to ask whether, uh, you know, test the hypothesis that that function depends upon that area and that firing pattern at that time, ideally, actually, in a task that is completely conceptually analogous to where you saw the correlate, but maybe totally different in terms of the cues it uses, the modality, like all that stuff. Like this is actually, uh, so I was a graduate student of Howard Eichenbaum's, and this is one of the things that I feel like uh, I, I think he does in a way that I really think is awesome is that he often, he abstracts things into a concept or a, a function that isn't tied, and this is what I like about learning theory, that the function's not tied to the, the thing that I, I developed it in, the way that the task, it then can be tested in a totally different task that on its face looks nothing like the original one. But there it is again, you know, relational memory, right? For example, test it with space, test it with, you know, odor maps, uh, digging tasks, you know, it's all the same function. Um, but I think that's the idea. And so, the, so for me, uh, I, I would find it hard to imagine how to do the kind of stuff that that I that I that I am excited about in our lab if we didn't have if we weren't in a species where we could do both things right where we could have the single units to give us hints about why something is involved in a task and then we go back to the task so uh, and and then and then of course likewise take the causal data and then go you know so we have this sort of weird causal result I talked about today. Everybody wants to know, well, do the dopamine neurons fire at that time? Well, I don't know. So we'll go back and look. I mean, if they don't, then it's not like my causal data is wrong. It's that, that we don't appreciate the code, maybe, that's being used. So we'll look around some more. We'll find out as an ensemble. What is it, right? So, so I really see them as two sides of the same coin, either one all by itself. And there are others too, right? Obviously, you can throw in computational modeling if you can and slice physiology, and, you know, like, Ideally, we, uh, I don't see how we can keep doing neuroscience the way we do it now um, for much longer. Right? Yeah, I, and the, I, the, so yeah, so the advantage of all those learning theories is that they manage to parameterize, is that a word? Parameterize <laughs> um, all the behavioral output that they have. And now we as neuroscientists are trying to find the one neuron that fits into delta T it's Which was to -do actually list. Your to -do, it's your to-do list. It's your to-do list. Yeah. It, gives, it gives you a list. So this parameter must be encoded by neuron X. This other parameter must be encoded by area Y. And but maybe there and maybe there's some parameters we don't even have maybe in the equations. There, maybe there are parameters that we that that are not encoded by behavioral output. And maybe no neuron is the one that encodes delta T. It could be um, an ensemble of different parts of the brain that are almost seem unrelated right. to each other um, until we actually start recording from them somehow. And so I think I, agree. I, th I think you're right. I think that some way to be able to look at the activity of neurons or activity of populations of neurons or whatever your favorite measure may be, um, while an animal is doing a behavior that in such a way that the behavior is not constrained so much that it becomes a binary output, that either you get the behavior you want or you don't, right? Because otherwise then you just get studies that say, yes, it works this way, and then you get an almost identical study that says, no, it isn't, yeah. right? But it may just be that, that the neurons that you're looking at or the bold signal that you're looking at 
has nothing to do with that behavior to begin with. It's just the fact, maybe it's just the fact that it's a constraint of that behavior that, that forces them into some artificial encoding. But I think that's one of the elegant things about the study, what you talked about today was trying to sort of distinguish, you know, these sort of two contrasting ideas of what, you know, dopamine may be doing. Is it, you know, encoding sort of a cash value or is it involved with, you know, sort of, you know, learning associations and you design these sort of behavioral experiments so that you could then tease these two things apart. And I think put them in opposition in opposition. And I think that's actually, that's a really good strength of like coming up with the new behavioral assays to sort of, you have a prediction, but you can, as you were saying, you know, Howard Eichelbaum stuff is applying this in a new scenario. And if it holds, then great, then you can keep going with that prediction. But if not, then, you know, defenestrate it and move on um, or refine. (laughs) That's a real word. Yeah. It is. It's one of the yeah. best words that's underutilized. The window. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there was something else that Carla said that made me think of, uh, of a comment on the singular recording. Um, so the way I the way I view the singular recording now, um, and you guys can tell me if you disagree, is uh, right now we constrain the behavior because, to to some extent, we're limited in our abilities to record uh, multiple single units, and even if we do, don't we don't know how they're connected, and sort of the ensemble analyses. It's sort of uh, um, something that I think is still coming. More of a guess. Right? Yeah. But as we become more confident of how to analyze uh, simultaneous firing in large group of neur- groups of neurons, then I think we'll be free to let the behaviors be more naturalistic or less constrained, right? And so I think of people that do hippocampal recording uh, studies like David Radish and lots of you know, mazes. Uh, John Wallace had a really nice paper recently recording an overfound cortex in monkeys, uh, large groups of neurons simultaneously recorded in an economic choice task and saw some, I think, some some things that were unexpected. Um, uh, so I think that's, I think that's a transition that's going to happen in, in, in the coming, you know, 10 or 15 years or whatever. Um, that won't mean that you stop doing the constrained behaviors because I think you can learn valuable things. You can test very specifically whether neurons do X or Y, but then you pair it up with large ensemble recordings and less constrained tasks. Or, or allow the less constrained tasks to give you a clue as to what clue your what's going. constrained yeah. behavior should one, be. One problem with that, though, uh, and I don't know if many other people are bothered by this, but I am, is that, uh, and you said it a minute ago, like if you do single recording, you're going to find some stuff, right? Like, you know, there's just no question you're going to find some stuff. And if you give me... You know, and that's true if you give me one neuron at a time. If you give me like 200 neurons, well, I'll definitely find some stuff, right. right? And right now we can sort of test ideas that come from one neuron at a time recording because we have optogenetics and, you know, for that microstimulation and stuff. If you start proposing that an area does some really critical thing based on some, you know, like the, uh, the mixed selectivity stuff that I love, but, uh, but how am I ever going to, how am I going to test that, right? How am I going to? Target my mixed selectivity neurons, and right. Well, I feel like uh, Bruce yeah. Hope's like uh, Dono type stuff is probably. I, I mean, unfortunately, it's a. But are, you're killing them, and then it's it's done. But, but what like, is FOSS? FOSS is a neural activity. Yeah, but it's, but, but that sort of idea though of being able it's to not. sort of. I, I'm I'm laughing because I agree with you. <laughs> okay, well, this should go on the podcast. <laughs> right? I wish Charlie was here. He has such opinions about FOSS. FOSS is not yeah. neural activity. Huh? It's not. <laughs> yep. It's well, it's treated. It's used. Well, I know it's crazy. As a proxy, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's related clearly, uh, but it, but if I stick an electrode into you know my pick your favorite brain area and run a task and have a rat, rat or a monkey or whatever run around, you know that you know 
if you don't care when those neurons are active, like 50, 60, 70, 80% of the neurons are going to care about what's going on in that task. I you can breathe on a rat and you're going to get some yeah, FOSS. Right? So. So, well, but that's not true. The FOSS, it's like uh, 5, 10, 15% or something, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, it's not so, the same. As, well, one of the things about these ensemble recordings have been, it's a little bit clear. I, it's a little bit unclear about, a lot of people have an expectation that they're going to make this huge difference in terms of right. their code and so forth. And I think they will, but the, especially in the context that you were talking about, the biggest difference about more complex tasks and so forth is that the yield is way better. So suppose you just take this as single units and you analyze them. You have a whole bunch of single units all at once that you can collect enough data because you know to get a reproducibility in some case, you have to often reproduce exactly the same behavior over and over and over again and get ends and stuff like that. Well, if you can get ends at 400 times as fast as you did before, now you're free to run and record continuously and other kinds of things. You're free to run a lot more complicated behavior because you can get within animal controls over a lot of conditions with a lot of neurons. And it's, some of it is just that, right? It's just so yield. Without the ensemble. Without any special yeah, yeah. ensemble yeah, sure, encoding, it's, it's the yeah. yield that you can get. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, now, there may be, there likely is, of course, other uh, kinds of complicated things that, that happen in terms of true ensemble things. But if you have mixed selectivity, at least you can get right. the distribution of those selectivities you know, over some sample in a reasonable time in one experiment or two experiments or five experiments. And you can do things like... Uh, you know, single shot tasks, evaluation, or what I did today, like, it's really the critical behavior is one trial, right? There's, you know, I need to be able to record a hundred neurons to do that reasonably. So in, in talking about behavior, which is like infinitely flexible, and, you know, you can find multi-selectivity everywhere, and all of cortex is doing seemingly everything, it, it seems, okay, that's hard, and that's what we just spent the last few minutes talking about, but you have this other great tool, which is um, addiction, which sort of shuts down so much of this flexibility and delimits the system in a completely different way, right? Can you talk about, I mean, to, to me, it seems like in just sort of glancing at some of your work that you're really looking at um, addiction as a sort of a shift of one strategy versus another in terms of these model-free versus model-based um, ways to manage decision-making. I mean, can you say something about that? Is that right? Uh, yeah, no, that's definitely, the way you've characterized it is definitely right. Um, so uh, I sort of got interested in this a few years ago because it seemed uh, seemed like a, a reasonable hypothesis um, that to some extent exposure to at least some addictive drugs would actually maybe cause changes in how the brain systems were processing associative information. And um, I remember thinking distinctly that the kind of behavior we saw after overfrontal lesions in our rats where they would uh, not stop responding to a cue that predicts some food that they don't actually want to eat anymore, right? Just anecdotally sounded a lot like, um, you know, sort of how addicts talk about their experience, right? Like, I want to quit. I don't want to take drugs. But then they, they're put in a situation and they, they pursue those things, even though they don't, uh, I guess, uh, Camp Barrage and Tony uh, um, Terry Robinson would call it, they, they don't want them, right? They like them, but they don't want them. So... So we wondered if just exposing animals to cocaine would do this, and so uh, it seemed like it does. The pro I guess the, the shortcoming of this is I've kind of felt like it almost has told us, told me as much about the neural systems and what they do normally, because we can see the changes in the behavior and the drugs change the correlates often. 
Um, it's almost told me more about the normal systems or as much about them as what may actually be going on in addiction. I mean, it's clearly, it's clear addiction is not just prefrontal damage or whatever, dysfunction. It's more than that. So, um, and we see these changes. We don't see them in some small subset of extended access animals who are compulsively drug seeking and all that kind of stuff. So, so I guess the, it would be overselling to say that it is at all, um, you know, mapping on to what, you know, real addic addiction researchers think of as addiction. Um, but I think it's a, I, I think it'd be an important component, certainly, of, you know, the, sort of what's really the problem with addiction, which is that even when you treat them or get them away from the drugs, some proportion of them can't stop relapsing. Or almost <laughs> all of them. <laughs> or almost all of them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. This is almost any drug therapy a failure for the most part? Yeah, Do we know of anything that actually works? My understanding is that it's the classic one third get better, one third get worse. Yeah, one third get worse. <laughs> so if you just randomly assign you know, that's a vague result you would get. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, an, I, I, to be honest, I shouldn't talk about it. I'm not a trained addiction treatment expert. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to the going back to the uh, the modeling behavior versus versus neurons, right? Um, so again, we're we're trying to ascribe the activity of neurons to certain behavior as if the neuron itself, like say for example a dopamine neuron that's somewhere in the bottom of the brain, um, knows what's going on in the outer world. Um, as far as we know, there's no direct sensory input. Even V1, I'm not even sure we know how exactly they respond, even though we have years since Hubel and Weasel have discovered all of this stuff with V1, but they're a lot more complicated than that. So for something like a dopamine neuron, do they really care about delta T? <laughs> Or, or does a dopamine neuron really only care about the sum of its inputs uh, somehow? And 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 um, we are ascribing delta T to can, that. Can you just say? Or, can you just define delta T? Here? Or more probably, does dopamine actually care? Yeah. Does dopamine care? Yeah. What, does, what does dopamine care? What does dopamine? What does a dopamine cell really care about? Right. <laughs> That's a open question. I don't know. I was I wasn't being rhetorical. I want to know. She wanted you to define delta T. Yeah, delta T. Oh, oh, just, just, the, just the error, just the chain, the error. Um, and for dopamine cells, it's, it's just a reward prediction error. Yes. But um, it, it, just wanted to get everyone up to yeah, speed. Yeah. They didn't hear the talk. So. Yeah. Well, presumably, I mean, I mean, you're just asking a different thing. Presumably, a, a, a neuron fires in response to its history of past inputs and its history of past activity among itself. And so the question that you're asking is whether those inputs are correlated with this external thing, delta T, maybe through some complex polysensory, polysynaptic pathway. But it's the same. It's not a direct thing, but if it's correlated. It's not a direct thing, but it's, so it just turns it around, right? So rather than using the behavior and saying all this, uh, with Scorla Wagner and, 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 and Burton and all, just instead of parameterizing a behavioral context and then trying to find the dope, the, 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 whether the dopamine neuron fits delta T or not, or whether, um, or whether, uh, hippocampal neurons, um, fit only in space because the behavior at the time was literally constrained. They were just in this box, right? <laughs> so, so these cells just, they started firing and in different parts of a box. And so then they started calling them place cells. So that's the literal translation of a constraining behavior, uh, and giving you a result. But we're finding out that hippocampal place cells are not just place cells. And um, rather than trying to find the, the, the perfect behavioral test to tell us exactly what, what neurons do, wouldn't it be nicer to just find out 
what do uh, what does what your neuron of interest actually care about? And then and then use that as your information or as your parameter to find out how that could translate to some behavior. What do you mean with the care about? Because they care about different things in different contexts. Right? I, I didn't, yeah, know, I didn't yeah. know neurons cared. To, to, to jump back at this. They care, they care a lot about um, uh, glutamate. <laughs> they care a lot about they take care of you when you get old. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a, that's a, you know, in some sense, it's a reverse correlation experiment. You have a bunch of complex stuff, and you find out when in that space of behaviors that the neuron fires. And so... But you just have to have some constrained behavior. I mean, you have to, you have to, uh, you have to parameterize the behavior, or whatever. So you, you don't necessarily have to constrain it, but you have to measure what you, what is relevant. Otherwise, you're not going to find the correlate with when it fires. How do you know if there's something that about the behavior that you're not measuring, and that's what it cares about? You're not going to know. Look, look that's random. the problem with like free form, sort of like you know we were talking earlier about saying that you know having more natural sort of behaviors and being able to see what the dope you know. Sorry, dopamine system always comes out reflexively. But how, like, you know, neural systems are actually, you know, involved with the particular behavior. The problem with that is you don't even know where to begin to look. And the signals you might end up seeing at that point may be so unbelievably tiny because it may be distributed over sort of a longer temporal window. So, like, it's really difficult to do that. And I think, you know, right now we've been talking more like, you know, what's driving a particular neuron. But I think actually the more interesting thing is how is a neuron's like output then interacting with other inputs coming? Because that's what gives you sort of the specificity is that, you know, say you've got a neurotransmitter that's being activated by a particular stimulus. But what allows that neurotransmitter to influence behavior to that stimulus is that acting in concert with that's, other that's inputs? That's just driving yeah. those neurons that are downstream. It is. It's, it's complicated. complicated. No, but, I, you think, yeah. but you, you just kind of, I, I can't help but jump in. In the sense that you just gave, you know, a great justification for neuroethology, right? In the sense that you choose an organism and a behavior that the organism really cares about and is specialized for doing that. So you have specialized structures in the brain Mm -hmm. and you have specialized behavior. So at least you know that you're focusing some particular behavior and some particular parts of the brain that pop out as being exceptional. And then you study it in those organisms because they're not distributed everywhere in some small little thing. I mean, that's really the basis of neuroethology. But look, you know, unfortunately, they're not. Most but, animals aren't mice, so you can't. That's totally that. true. But what on about, the other extreme, what about bird song. No, but that's what I'm saying. No, no, I was no. have a cough bird song in there. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. Love, yeah, everybody's on their soapbox. But, <laughs> I mean, there's one. The one thing that I, I can say about a promise for that, and I think that a lot of the the optogenetics is really going to make uh, a big difference is that you can get closed loop experiments and the fact that you can process online. And the cool thing is you can do it both ways. So if you get a complicated behavioral setup, you could, you could trigger the behavioral contingencies based on the brain activity. Uh, And, and people do this about searching for stimuli. What's an optimal stimulus? Well, you just show a bunch of stimuli and then you search in the things in the areas that the brain that the neuron likes, and then you then you do it as a feedback way. Then the the, the stimuli that you show depend on what it likes, and then you start which it discriminates. And so your stimulus selection or your behavioral selection is dependent on the brain and not necessarily Are the other way. Are people doing that? It's like dynamic optical clamp or something. Yeah, there's a bunch of. Um Closed loop systems that people are trying now. Wow. There's someone at I've heard about. 
There's someone at uh, the Weissman Institute in Israel that I've met with a couple of times. I'm embarrassed. I can't uh, recall his name before I talk about it on a podcast. But uh, I think he's, he's doing something similar to this where he's uh, using um, uh, monitoring of a person's strategy, uh, I think with fMRI, um, to figure out when is the right time to deliver uh, a particular kind of trial for that person to learn, right, and can actually facilitate learning rates and, um, you know, alter how fast you'll acquire information in the task by, you know, you, you, you know this from your own experience, right? Like if you, you let aha moment, right? So what is the aha moment is a combination of getting, getting a, a feedback, but it's also your hypothesis at the time. You have to be in exactly the right state of mind for that feedback to, to hit you as significant, right? Like if it happens a couple trials too early for my rats, I imagine, it might just totally pass them by. They wouldn't notice at all, right? And of course, if it happens late, then they've already figured it out or whatever, right? Like they figured it out through their own you know, way. But if I could figure out like, okay, when does the rat kind of think that it's, it's maybe working this way and I'll give them that trial right then. And you'll go, ah, that's exactly right. Um, and so this, this person <coughs> is doing this, uh, I think, people. Um, but it's an example that's kind of biofeedback. Yeah, I mean, and so if you, you couple that to brain activity, brain. then you can actually test, okay, well, where is that hypothesis in the brain, right? Oh, it's in that Area, the bold activity in that area or or at that time um, right so if you talk about things that, that happen yep. with overtraining right. then you get different contingencies and then you could potentially get a signature say variability or whatever that you have that you're in that intermediate state of training that's where you're plastic for certain I, kinds of things and others I think do, I think I, my opinion is that we are soon going to be in this I already think we're there actually like the ability to do the kinds of experiments that really move things forward, um, they really require um, a level of expertise at multiple things that I find hard to imagine that most labs are capable of. I mean, how much I don't think ours is really for a lot of things. I mean, we do behavior and we can do some you know optogenetic stuff now and seeing your recording and some computational modeling, collaborating with people like you know Yale Niv and Daniel Ba help us out. Um, you know, but if, but then, you know, going down the reductionist level and, um, you know, or, or going across species, all that kind of stuff, like, that's what we really need to be doing, I think. So you think um, the meta-analysis is going to become more and more... Uh, well, so, I, uh, uh, no, I think, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know the history, but at some point physics transitioned from an uh, individual PI kind of serendipity model to one where things were more constrained by groups of researchers, right? Um, and I kind of wonder whether we'll have to move to something like that to really, you know, start to go beyond sort of hypothesis testing in our own little models that don't really connect to other people's ideas so well to, uh, to really, you know, really trying to understand what some of these circuits are doing. Um, and this relates to the NIH, of course, because, you know, they preach a lot about wanting to fund multidisciplinary grants, but, uh, um, you know, my limited experience before I joined the NIH getting funding those kinds of projects across labs is not easy because, of course, uh, it's really hard to come in with a tight R1 that has three different PIs and have preliminary data for every single aim and all the rest of that stuff that, you know, uh, but that's, that's where the, uh, you know, I think that's what they really should encourage in a really strong way. So there was one thing Carlos said I wanted to just comment on, and you also said it too, like talking about the dopamine neurons and what they, you know, uh, whether they're prediction or signaling or whatever, how to think about that. So you said properly that they're correlates, right? I think that that is forgotten so 
much too readily, right? Like we immediately go from correlates to functions, and they're not functions, they're correlates. Um, and then I think my answer to your question would be that there is no way there is a correspondence between what dopamine does, and dopamine neurons, and phasic dopamine, and all that stuff, and this simple idea about prediction errors. Not at any level, shape, or form. There's no way these two things are aligned, you know, uh, you know, even 50% or whatever. Like, dopamine's got to be doing its own thing, and we've just sort of gotten a glimpse of what it does through this this template that we're putting on it in these experiments, right? And maybe that, it maybe it really does do that to some extent, but its function is just, we can't possibly have been so lucky to have stumbled across something like that, and that's what it does, right? It's gotta be much more pretty well, it does that. But you, you, get, you get these signals. That's though. not its function, right? That's it's not, not function. what it's there for. It's like, you know, drop down from, uh, you know, on high as our, as our whatever, prediction error system, it's gotta be. Yeah, but, but you know, this, I, I can't help but jump in there because you started saying about how this learning theory is such a great guide and so forth. And you get to the prediction error, but, the, but, but if you get to reinforcement-based learning, so, so something that gets pretty close. I mean, there's details some, about whether whether it's exactly all model, that. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Okay? <laughs> so the question is not, is the brain a you know perfect mapping of learning theory or any other you know, model and behavior of predictive validity. The question is, where does it stop being one, right? And I think it's amazingly impressive how far along the line we've gotten looking at how dopamine neurons fire to this or that or in that circumstance or the other, you know, before they've started to break down this monolithic idea that dopamine neurons are a model, a cache value prediction error, uh, before it started to break down. Like, it made it a long way, right? Pretty impressive, I think. Um, but it's definitely going to break down. There's just no chance it's not going to break down. Um, and it's not a it's not a criticism of the idea. It's just a fact. Um, and, and, the, and and to continue on this line, I think one of the things that I I think is really amazing, and all the listeners to the podcast can think about this themselves if they want to, is how often we say dopamine when we mean prediction error, and we say prediction error when we mean dopamine. Right? These are not the same thing, and yet. In common speaking around the lab, even in our lab, we do it all the time. I just got comments back uh, from, uh, we're dealing with some comments from editors at a place that shall remain nameless, and they're, they're basically asking us about the, the, the dopamine you know, signal or whatever when what they mean is a prediction error. Uh, so the problem with that is different. But the thing, you only observe these signals, you don't observe them necessarily on individual trials. You get it by averaging over multiple trials. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing that, like, true, true. if we really want to have the perfect correlate to be to behavior, you need to have one trial learning. And, and that's multiple the, neurons. Yeah. And that's the only way you can do it. And so, you know, you get these nice signals, but again, it's averaging over multiple trials. And I'm sorry, I got to jump on one other thing because you used the word phasic and in your talk uh, you were using transient. Yeah. These words, I mean, it, it yes. also like value. These are words that are thrown around and carelessly thrown around. And what is one person's phasic is, you know, totally different to somebody else. And that it, it, it does a disservice to the whole entire field just because there are these vague terms that people can interchangeably use, uh, you know, unless you sort of operationally define what you mean by, but yeah, I, I hate the word tonic and phasic. <laughs> those, are, those are two words. I know, but <laughs> having trouble counting today. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's it's beginning to break down now already. So there's this the really cool paper from Anao Yoshida's lab uh, in Neuron came out like a month or two ago, uh, where, yeah, where 
Yeah, so he, he recorded from a number, six or seven different areas, um, from actual cells known to make synaptic contacts right. onto dopamine neurons. And so uh, he, he was able to select those neurons within a given area that projects to, I think, VTA or compact, I forget which one. Um, but not only that, but the neurons within that area that actually are making synaptic contacts onto dopamine neurons and recorded from those. And the idea for the experiment was to try to figure out where was, for example, delta T coming from, where, um, if we want to call it value was coming Uh, from, where was the association coming from? It was from everywhere. And and, and again, it was from everywhere and nowhere also, because the, the really weird result that he got was, so he managed to adjust the weighting of all the inputs of the six or seven inputs so so in such a way that he could predict the actual firing pattern of the dopamine run that he actually recorded from Um, which is okay great so that means that there there is some some actual input that's doing something to dopamine cells but what was really weird was then if he just shuffled the weights or just randomly reassigned them the the prediction of how the dopamine cell was going to fire got a little bit worse, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> right. So, so, like, so if, if there's somewhere that where delta T is coming from, where prediction error is coming from, or where um, the comparison of, of expected reward versus actual reward is coming from, one would expect that if you mess with the weights of this one area that's giving the expected reward versus the actual reward, that the, the activity, your predicted activity of the dopamine neuron would be completely lost. But it was far from it. But, the, right. but the, they didn't, I, I didn't read the paper in detail, but they, the behavior is pretty simple. That's right. Yeah, right? so again, it was a simple the, the, behavior. You, yeah. So you only need about two bits of information to recreate the signal. And yeah, one event, and then between and, events, and then, yeah. then another event. So I think what, what I really liked about that paper uh, was that, um, so what, what you're suggesting is that, uh, you know, gee, why was this signal present in so many different areas and why did it all appear to be redundant, right? Yeah. And by Im- implicit, I think, in your comment is that why would you do that for such a stupidly simple signal, right? <laughs> why would you have to have it spread across all these different areas? And, and I think that's exactly right. And so what I liked about the paper actually was it, it suggests to me that, that the experiment basically uh, dumbs down or reduces the complexity of the signal just to do the experiment. But the fact that all of these areas could support that simple signal says that probably the brain is using all of these areas to create a much more complicated signal, right? Because otherwise, why have them all? You know, why, you know, you can get that kind of information from just one of them. We'll just send it all to that area yeah, and funnel it in, right? So uh, I actually thought that was really nice, and, uh, and it's exactly what I think you'd predict if it was a more general you know, teaching mechanism or air signaling, salience, all these things. Thank you for being with us. Jeff Schoenbaum. It's been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. (laughs) Thanks, guys.